Hey, good people. This is your NI Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I have the impression on the brain. The impression. And I want to be honest, I have a semi-outline in front of me. I don't have a list. I have an outline, and that's not something I do in this project. But I am, um, I think what this, what I want this reflection to do for me requires some type of structure. Doesn't mean I'm going to stick to the outline, but I needed to, um, get a sense of what was happening internally when I decided to hit the record button. Um, so my starting point is called The Impression, and I am going to be talking about phenomena associated with white supremacy. So if you're sensitive to talking about race, particularly white supremacy, because that's just not a term we use in everyday conversations, in, in racial racialized conversations, or racial justice work does not readily include white supremacy as a language, as a talking point. And so you may not have the tolerance for this conversation, the political appetite for this conversation, and that's fine. I don't know how you've been listening to me all this time, if you are, in fact, um, a follower of this project, but I do want to tell you, I attempt, I'm going to attempt to embrace the real conversation of white supremacy. I don't know for sure because this truly still is a reflection. And while I have an outline, um, I don't really have an agenda. Isn't that interesting? Can you have an outline without a thesis? That's interesting. As a writer, I'm going to have to come back and entertain that. Can you have an outline without a thesis? And so, anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to fall into a rabbit hole. So, <laughs> so, um, just wanted to give you that heads up. The impression, and we are going to at some point talk about white supremacy if all goes well. Okay. If you are new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer world worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as being an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I am a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically identify, uh, politically I subscribe to tenets of critical race feminism, which is a fairly, fairly new concept, uh, framing rather. For me, though, it means that I have an intellectual sensitivity to power, um, 
primarily as relating to, or particularly as relating to race, gender, class, sexuality. These concepts, this con, these constructs of power manifest at the interpersonal level. That's where you see it the most when you're in a one-on-one situation or small group setting. Um, but they do also exist at the macro or institutional level. But anyway, most people who look at these constructs at the institutional level are comfortable with seeing it. But not many people see race, class, sexuality, gender as structures of power at the interpersonal level, one-on-one. And that is my priming. I see that without effort. I have to close my eyes and shut out the noise because it's so loud for me. This project is unedited and it is unscripted. Even though today I do have a semi-outline. It's really not an outline, y'all. So I think of an outline. They don't really teach outlines in schools anymore. Not At least not the schools that I've been a part of. But I'm old school. (laughs) And um, outline would start off with a Roman numeral as the main point. Then you have capital letters as a sub point. And then you have numbers as supporting details. So in one main point, you can have a main point, two subpoints, and for each of those subpoints, you can have supporting details. I don't have any of that. I simply have one, the impression, and I have three bullet points, and then I have white supremacy at the bottom. So that's what I mean by an outline. It's really, really not an outline, but... It's more than what I do in this project, because in this project, I might have a list of random thoughts, but they're not organized until I start doing the reflection process. But nonetheless, (laughs) this project is unedited and it's unscripted. Um, The spirit of it is, and I really have worked hard to be okay with it. As an INTJ, that was very hard for me to come out loud and freestyle it uh, this way, but I, I have found so much value uh, in the unscripted. Um, so anyway, if you want to know more about me or this project, feel free to go to my website at youranidom.wordpress.com. Okay. All right. By the way, you're, <laughs> I don't know if I sound different, but it's like, um, seven o'clock on a Saturday morning and I'm, I've been up for a while, but I've been laying down research and writing. And so you might be getting my morning voice. I'm not trying to sound sexy. (laughs) And you might say, you don't sound sexy. But anyway, just want to let you know you're getting my morning voice. All right, you guys. So I'm going to start off with the the impression. And I emphasize the word the or the, the impression. This project, uh, Your N.I. Dom, will have a two-year anniversary at the end of June. So next month. I've been doing this project for two years, and I talked, I believe, in my last episode, my last episode, I don't even know what the name of it was called. I don't even remember what I named it. But I talked, philosophy, maybe? No, I I think I named it The Lesson. But I started off talking about different schools of thought, different philosophies. Anyway, 
in that episode, I think I talked about the evolution of this project, and I'm not going to reopen that up. But um, the project has evolved into a place where it is a thing. It started off being, <sighs> consciously, it started off being something that I was doing during the pandemic. Um, I was still fairly re- newly single and got caught in the pandemic being in the house by myself and wanting to process and talk. And I was like, found some INTJ chick who was just talking. And I'm like, well, shoot, if she can do it, I can do it. And knowing that I have a primary podcast that's more structured and more formal, giving myself permission to just say, let's just hit the record button and just start talking. Just start talking and see what comes out of your mouth was a big deal. And so this project has evolved. And and I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to talk about the evolution of it. But throughout it, I think early on, I think right from the beginning, I had talked about this thing called the impression. So I, I think I got the concept of an impression from somewhere else. I think um, it may be mine. I don't know. No, it's not. It's not. I don't know if many people have talked about who talk about impressions in personality communities, personality theory communities. I don't know if they've really opened it up. But for me, I think in impressions, and I've said this many times before, but for the sake of this conversation today, I'm going to revisit it. For me, an impression is like um Knowing that something is there, even though you can't see it. Knowing that something is there, even though you cannot see it. And I liken that to a bed, a pillowcase, a pillow and a bed. You sleep in the bed. You sleep on a pillow. Not everybody does, but most people do, including my dogs. They like to lay their head on a pillow, which is really fascinating to me. Um, particularly one. And yes, I am a black person that has dogs in a bed. I was in an online community and they were like, black people don't put dogs in the bed with them. This one does. <laughs> so, <laughs> If I have a drop in followership, <laughs> I'll know why that you do not like knowing that my dogs sleep in the bed with me. <laughs> so anyway, but anyway, let's get back to the human. I'm talking about humans. Um, most humans sleep with pillows, uh, right? Anyway, you get up in the morning. Let's say you don't make up your bed. Um, if you don't make up your bed, a person can come inside of the, go inside of the room and will be able to surmise that somebody slept in the bed. Not just by the logic of the bed existing, which is one thing that's important, but by the imprint in the pillowcase and sometimes in the bed. There's an imprint in the pillowcase where your head was. Your head is no longer on the pillow. The imprint is. And that imprint lets us know that your head once was there. That's an impression. It's an impression for me. I move about in the world with thousands of impressions. Thousands of them. And I now accept 
that that's indicative of me being an NI Dom. NI, if you are new, stands for introverted intuition. It is a cognitive function in the Myers-Briggs system in, um, based on the work of Carl Jung. So th- this theory says that we um, have eight, co- our, our minds work, uh, the way that we think uses eight different types of cognitive stuff, styles, if you will. And one of those styles is introverted intuition. And it's the one that is most difficult to explain for a number of reasons. And I've said this before. It is an abstract cognitive function. I mean, if nothing, if nothing showcases or illustrates this abstraction, then the imprint in the pillowcase, I don't know what will. So with the pillowcase, it's, um, it is the most difficult thing to explain when you're, so it's not hard for me to make this case about the pillowcase and your head being imprinted on the pillow. And then we know that your head was there, even though you're no longer in the bed. We know you, you were on that bed because we can see the imprint, the indenting on the pillowcase. That's, that's not hard. But when you're in a world and you're, and you're, especially for me at work or in my family, you're just interacting and you're in a, interacting in a shared space. You're moving about in a shared space or you're experiencing a shared event. And NI Dom is going to talk about that space or talk about that event in a way that's different from a sensor. We're going to talk in a very abstract way, in a way that doesn't have concrete sensory based evidence. So I am making a sensory based claim when I talk about the imprint in the pillowcase because that's sensory still. You can see an imprint, an indenting in the pillowcase. So that's sensory data. You can see that. But that's a metaphor of what an imp- uh, uh, of an impression as an NI DOM. As an NI DOM, we can see a thing with no sensory evidence for it. We know that a thing exists and there's no sensory, there's no sensory data. And what I mean by sensory data, I'm talking about I'm just going to say the five senses. There are people who argue that there are more. I can't get into that. I'm just going to go back to being in elementary school. Five senses. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. That's how we measure the sensory world, the physical world. So an NI dumb will know things, will know it but will not have sensory data as evidence. So when we're talking to a sensor, whether that sensor is a DOM sensor or an auxiliary sensor, it's hard because a sensor is looking for something measurable to, as evidence that a thing is a thing. For a sensor, a thing is a thing because you can measure it through sound, sight, Smell, touch, taste, roughly speaking. But in an intuitive, we like don't we don't need we don't need our knowing our knowing is not limited to sensory measurements. 
All right, I feel like I'm in a rabbit hole. Let me get back. Um, let me bring it back. So when an intuitive is in conversation with a sensor, and it doesn't mean, and, and I'm using, so intuition and sensory are both perceiving functions in the Myers-Briggs system. Okay, it's a way of knowing. It's a way of bringing in data. It's a way of knowing. I know I'm bringing in data and I know. A sensor is going to bring in data, sensory data, and no. And in IDOM, it's going to bring in impressions. Now, I don't hear people talking about it that way because there are so many different ways that intuition is explained. And then intuitives are divided into two camps. Either you're an extroverted intuitive or you're an introverted intuitive. I'm an introverted intuitive and I'm an introverted intuitive and that is my dominant function. It's not auxiliary for me. As an INTJ, it is dominant. The only other type in that system that has NI as a DOM function, it would be your INFJs. Okay. All right. So it's hard to explain intuition, particularly introverted intuition. It's an abstract function and it is an unconscious function. Most of what happens for us as an NIDOM happens when we're not aware of it. So we have a deep knowing and more and okay. All right. I'm, I got to make this case. I got to make this case about the impression before I can hit the other stuff on my outline, <laughs> my list outline. Because if you don't understand this impression piece, you're going to have a hard time following the other pieces of this discussion. So intuition in the Myers-Briggs system, and this, this is a genius system if you ask me, and I have yet to find any holes in it. And I'm a critical person, y'all. And I can find holes. There are some concerns I have about how in the Myers-Briggs we limit the conversation to the primary stack, the top four cognitive functions when there are a total of eight. And um, because I can clearly access my fifth and sixth function. It's not hard for me at all. I think I do it fairly regularly with ease. And the Myers-Briggs doesn't allow for that. Um um, it, it just doesn't, and I don't, I'm not going to get off into that, but anyway, so, but in the top four, in the, what's called the primary stack, out of the eight functions, each personality type, and according to this system, each personality type uses four on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis. Okay. But this, it's a stack. So, but what's awesome about this theory is that our dominant function is tethered or linked to our inferior function. I'm still within the primary stack, the four. So the first function and the fourth function are linked. They're connected. They're like two sides of the same coin. So for me as an NI Dom, the other side of that is um, extroverted sensing. Those are both perceiving functions. One is introverted, one is extroverted, one is intuitive, the other is sensing. But there, it's all about how we know, how we bring in data. Okay. Well, as an, the extroverted sensing, for me, it's fourth in my stack. That's where you pull in the sensory data. For an NI DOM, that whole process is unconscious. 
We're not consciously processing it. So when I talk to someone who is a sensor dom, they have more, they have greater consciousness of the sensory data in the world. They're conscious about it. I'm not, but I'm pulling it in all the same. I'm experiencing the sensory data, but there's something about that data that's processed unconsciously so that when I begin to have my deep knowing, I can know with the rest of them, but there is a deep knowing and an unexplained knowing that is almost impossible to express because that un- that knowing happen unconsciously a lot of times when we sleep and then when it comes to the surface it comes to the surface as a for me and this is because I'm probably been training myself to respect it I now know before I have words and I think most introverted intuitives also know before they have words but they don't have either the knowledge or the confidence to talk about it because it's in, it's difficult. It's difficult to talk about something that you know and you don't have words for it and you don't even know what you know yet, but you know something. You know something. And because most of the world are in the Western society, 75% are censors, intuitives have been shamed and devalued and belittled when we start talking in this unknowing way, when we start talking in our intuitive selves. So most of us survive by shutting the hell up. I'm not talking about that because there's no way I'm going to get you to understand, which is why you have to develop your auxiliary function, your second function, so that you can better articulate out what you know through that dominant function. All right, I'm done with this. Okay. 22 minutes talking about the impression. Excuse me. So for me, I have come to accept that even when I don't have words, I know something. And what I'll say is I'm pre-language, you guys. I know something at the pre-language level. I don't have the words for it. Now, I've done an episode on this. I don't know what episode, but it had to be two seasons ago where I talked about the relationship between language and knowing. There's a book called The um, the Evolution of, of Consciousness, I think. It's really fascinating. It's a book that I've just been consuming over the past four years. It's, I don't, it's dense. It gives me a lot to think about. So I'll usually take it in for a while, and then I put it away because it's just so meaty for me. Well, this, I'm in a part of the book now, a chapter that's really making an argument that who we are as humans have, ch- has changed as our language has evolved. And as our language and our consciousness are tethered together. But that our language influences our consciousness. And I think a case can be made that our consciousness influences our language. I don't think that's hard to understand. But what's fascinating for me is that our language influences our consciousness. I guess that, I guess it doesn't sound that profound in anymore. It's not, maybe you don't think it's profound, but for me, I just think it's fascinating. So for me, I have just become comfortable and confident that even if I don't have the words to explain a thing, 
it doesn't mean the thing is invalid. I still legitimize, I will legitimize my knowing even when I don't have words for the knowing. Okay, I'm trying to stop now. I had to tell you that about the impression. That's important, okay? I can know a thing and not fully know how I know it. Now I know because of personality theory. Now I know that that somehow I've processed some sensory data at the unconscious level and it's not fully conscious. It's half conscious. It's conscious enough where I can see an impression, but not a conscious enough where I have the words or the evidence for the thing. Okay, moving on. I promise I'm moving on. Okay, now I'm going to go and talk about work. <laughs> I am in an organization that is a delicious case study for me. If I had the time to turn this experience into some type of case study, so much would come out. It is a petri dish of impressions. For me as a social scientist, I see so much that if I open up, so I can open up any social science book, any sociology book, but I want to say any social science book, and I could say on page five, oh, that happened on last week, Thursday, page seven, that happened this morning, page 56, that happened two months ago, that I would imagine I could make a case, I could take the entire textbook and show evidence in the organization that I've been working in for the past year. Now, would a, would a lay person see that? Probably not. So this is where it gets a little complicated for me because this is the, the correlation between my dominant function and my auxiliary function. My impressions aren't just magical. It's not, yeah, it is something that's happening unconscious with sensory data. But my understanding of sensory data has been influenced by my academic life. Um, I hold a bachelor's in education and in social science. I have a double bat, a, a double, uh, dual program for my bachelor's. I have a double master's for leadership, administrative leadership and instructional leadership. And then my PhD, I brought all of those disciplines together and I studied sociological concepts such as race, class, and power. And I applied it to my training on instructional and administrative leadership. So when I'm in the sensory world, I understand what I'm having, what's happening through my academic lens, my research lens. But all of that is processed on a day-to-day -day basis on the unconscious level. And I have impressions. Then when my supervisor, when I'm bothered by something or I want to take, I make a request for something, particularly when I make a request for something, because usually when I'm bothered, I wait until I have full manifestation to justify why I'm bothered. You know what I mean? Just because I don't move about and make decisions out of that emotional realm. But when I'm, I'm making a request 
or making a decision. As an executive officer, I'm not an executive officer right now. I'm, I'm a subordinate. I'm a leader as, an, as a subordinate. That's fascinating. But when in the past I've done leadership as an executive officer, I can move about intuitively. I can make decisions intuitively and not have to justify it. Now, the beautiful thing about being an executive officer is that if I make the wrong decision, I can't blame anybody. I made that decision. If that decision goes south, I can't say, well, my supervisor told me to do it. I I really can't even say the board told me to do it because I do, you know, as an executive officer, you do report to a board, which is an interesting concept that I'd love to talk about in a present day sense. But I don't know if I'll be able to get there. And I don't even know if I should get there because something happened recently that I want to talk about, but I'm not sure if I should. But anyway, as an executive officer, I'm making decisions a lot of times based off of my intuition and the results work for me. I don't have to defend it. The, the results defend my decision. The results of my decision-making supports my decision-making. Well, I'm in a leadership position right now, and I'm not the executive officer. So I have to support the things that I'm doing. I have to justify it. And that's not easy as an introverted, intuitive dom. It is insane, okay? So what I have found is that I'm slow to take action. Well, introverted intuitives are slow to take action anyway. But as a person that has a very developed auxiliary function as an extroverted thinker, and because I am experienced and trained and researched, I don't, if I were an executive officer, I wouldn't need, I wouldn't need to be slow to take action in my work. Not, not as slow as I am now. I wouldn't need to be. I'm experienced on this. But because I know I have to justify something that I I can't fully justify to a censor, because most of my supervisors right now are censors, and that's a whole separate conversation. I had once, my supervisor from last semester was an intuitive. So I could, I could fumble about intuitively from one intuitive to the next. Now, she was an extroverted intuitive. But nonetheless, we, st- we still could move about. She didn't, she didn't get irritated with me or go, I don't understand you because we were one intuitive to the next intuitive of talking. But I have transferred over into this assignment since Jeff February and I have three people I report to. They're all censors and they are all on record as being annoyed with me. Or they will, I don't know what you're talking about. You're not making sense. And it's hard, you guys. That is crushing. That is crushing for me. Okay. So I don't make, I don't move, I don't say anything. I'm slow to say things because I'm making, I want to make a decision. I got to support that decision. And I'm, my decision is based on a knowing that I have that is at the impression level. I have semi, I have a consciousness of it. I don't yet have the words for it. Okay. We're going to move on now. So um, since this organization put me on special assignment for 
since, excuse me, the beginning of February, I have moved in power. I'm not the executive officer, but I now have more power. And being in power means I have access to things I did not have access to last semester. I have a knowing. I have access to sensory data that I did not have access to last semester. Because I'm in a different, I have a different relationship. I'm in a position of power. Quasi, in my opinion, it's quasi power. But for the people who work for me, they see me in a position of power. My superiors are very good at delimiting my power, yet holding me liable as though I have all power. But that, I don't want to really talk about that today. But I'm going to come back and talk about when you when your power is delimited by your superiors, yet your responsibility hasn't been been delimited. Okay, delimited. So it's a limiting of power, but not a limiting of response of liability. I still I still absorb all the liability. And I had to send my superiors an email and I had a meeting with them this week because of that thing. I have I've incurred a liability for this role, but my power has been limited. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. okay. We're going to move on. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how I want to move about here. All right. So this morning, nope, 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 nope. Over the last two days. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm with over the last four days. One of my impressions about what's going on in that organization particularly the site in which I am now in charge of. Over the past few days, it's starting to become clear. And this morning, I woke up with the word. This morning, I got the language for the impression that manifested this week. And I want to say it manifested the impression manifested. But I think that there were many, 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 many impressions. Many, many. <laughs> M-A-N-Y, M-I-N-I. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many with an A, Y, and many with an I, I. You guys know what I'm saying. Hopefully you do. By now, if you've been following me, you know I, I talk in ridiculous ways. So I've had many, many impressions. And then this week, a grand impression surfaced. And I'm looking on my whiteboard. I have a whiteboard in my office. I was talking to somebody and I drew eight red dots across my whiteboard. And under those eight red dots, I drew a red line all the way across underneath the red dots. And each dot represented a complaint or a concern of my staff. And then I'm, as I'm talking to a person, I said, listen, first you guys said this was a, your concern. 
I went and I, I solved that dot. I put a cross on it. Then you said, this is a problem. I solved that, put a cross on it. And over the course of three months, since I've been in this assignment, you all have been giving me one complaint after another, that these are the things, this is why you have a problem with me because of this thing right here. See, we're having a problem with you because of this thing right here. Dot number one. Okay. That's okay. I'm here for it. Let me go and solve dot number one. I solved dot number one. Crossed off. Move. Next week. Here, we're bothered by this thing. Oh, we got another dot. Dot number two. Okay. Let me go and resolve that. Okay. I resolved it. Do you feel good about it? I solved it. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay. Crossed off dot number two. Dot number three surface. Do you guys get what I'm saying? And what's important to emphasize here is that each time a concern or a complaint has surfaced, I solved it. And I solved it by then checking in with my, my stakeholders, my constituents. And I say, hey, did I solve it? Yeah. You feel okay about it? Yes. All right. So I solve it. Not only do I solve it, I build buy-in. I build an emotional buy-in that I solved it. So you can't complain about that dot anymore because I've solved it and you feel good about it. At least that's what you said. You said. So it's not like they go back to that, that the dot number one, two or three and they go, you know what? I thought you solved it, but really after more time, really didn't solve it dot number one or dot number two or dot number three that's still a thing because then I would go okay that means you've got some new data or you're seeing things that you didn't see before give it to me because then because now if I solve a thing as an INTJ I'm a finisher uh, this young lady on YouTube talked about INTJs being finishers I love that language I'm a finisher I'm gonna close it I'm gonna fix it right so if I fixed it and you now say mm -mm, it wasn't fixed, oh, I'm not going to be offended. I want you to give me the data that I don't have access to so I can fix it. I want to finish it. But that's not what they're doing. They're not going back to an earlier problem. They come up with a new one. So what I have done, <laughs> and I don't know if this decision was um, because of something that was happening in me unconsciously. But what I did is I did a journal. And every day that I drove to work, minus maybe five days, I would say, this is day one on the assignment. Day two, this is day 14. This is day 36. Yesterday, which was Friday, I recorded my 63rd reflection. As I drove into work yesterday, I said, good morning. This is day 30. This is day 63. Okay. And every morning when I do that, I recap the day before and I talk about, I just talk like I don't have a structure to it, but in that you can hear those many, many impressions. Okay. The beauty of that is I'm going to be able to go back and listen to those recordings because it's going to be roughly 90 days, 90 days, roughly. 90 recordings. I'm going to be able to go back and chart, chart the complaints and as a dot. Cause it's more than eight dots, more than eight concerns. Every week there was a new concern, a new complaint. And this is why that's important. This week it occurred to me, the dots started connecting. 
the dots connected. That underneath each complaint, there's a theme. There's an undercurrent. So the person I was talking to, I said, and I didn't, I said, I had this visual on my board. I said, what do you think that undercurrent is? I said, can you understand my position when I see every week these complaints come up and they're different complaints and I'm solving them, right? I checked in with her. I'm solving them. What do you think is the red line underneath those dots? What do you think that is? And she's like, it's just been a crazy year. It's been a crazy year. People are just frustrated. People are just tired. Mm, I believe that. But I don't think that that's enough. That's not enough, sweetie. No, it's not. Because usually when people are tired and they, they start calling in, right? They, they quit. And I will agree that part one manifestation of being exhausted and tired is people become grumpy, cantankerous, sensitive, and negative. I get that. All right. I do get that. But that's not just tired. That's a manifestation of being tired. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Let me fix that. The grumpiness could be the manifestation of being tired. We know kids get grumpy. Toddlers get grumpy when they're tired. Okay, let's park that though. Because that's a possibility. Let's park that. I want to tell you another story. And this is one that's not on the, um, it's not in my outline. I thought, I thought about putting it on my paper, but I was like, I don't know if it works, but it absolutely works. So let me give you another story. I'm an educator. I'm functioning as a school principal right now, so I'm running a school. Um, and what we've been doing is having this debate. I'm going to go over 60 minutes, y'all. There's no way I'm not going to be able to go over 60 minutes. All right. So we've been having this conversation since I've been there. I've, have, I've had some reoccurring conversations. What is the role of the principal? Because... Part of the dots, not all of them, part of the complaints for me are things that are associated with the office of the principal. So if you, if you were in my office right now and you saw the red dots, you wouldn't see X, uh, I didn't check off all of them because some of the complaints or the concerns I'm not going to check off because they're, it's the nature of the job. Let me, let me tell you a different story. I'm going to come back. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you two stories. So yesterday I'm on the phone with a disgruntled parent and I, after I hung up the phone and I don't have many of those calls, most of them, my parents like me and really, we have really good conversation, but this particular parent, which we talked beautifully in the past, she was disgruntled. Um, and when I hung up the phone, I thought about what was the difference between her energy yesterday and the energy before. And it was just, I believe something else is going on in her world and she's frustrated. And I think she needs, she wants me to take a particular action because of something else is going on in her world, but I can't take that action because it just doesn't make, it's not, that's not my agenda to help 
her solve that other thing in her personal life. Um, and so because I won't help her in her personal life, I know this sounds weird. Now she's trying to make an argument that the thing she wants me to do is about me just doing my job. Okay. I'm not worried about making, I'm not worried about it. I just feel bad for her, right? So I'm in the middle of having this conversation with her, understanding that she's kind of desperate. She's frustrated and it's really not a problem with me. I'm trying to give her, I'm trying to empathize with her, even though she's being difficult. In the midst of this conversation, one of the supervisors for, um, one of the student supervisors knocks on my door and, and I, and he comes in, which I don't like when they do that. By the way, my AP made a comment about how previously the other principal, he could just walk in, but he can't walk in. No, you just can't walk in. He made a comment because if he was getting dressed, it wouldn't matter. You think? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway. So the supervisor last night is about, it's about 530. I don't usually stay at the job that late, but there were some things I just needed to wrap up for the, for the week. And, um, so he comes in and so I'm, I put my finger up to let him know I'm on the phone. And then, um, I put the lady, the parent on mute. I know I shouldn't have done this, but, and I'm like, or maybe I put her on hold. I think I put her on hold. I'm like, what's going on? And he's, talking about a particular student that's disrespectful and that's acting disrespectfully and being difficult. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, can you send me an email on that? I will follow up with you. I will follow up on that. He gets frustrated. And I said, just, I said, I'll, I'll follow up, but just send it to me an email because I'm on a, I mean, I didn't tell him this, but I mean, I gestured towards the phone, like I'm on the phone and I'll deal with the student on Monday because it's late. By the time I'm on the call, I'll deal with the student. The student is no longer, <laughs> the school is not out tonight for summer. I'm going to see that student on Monday. I will deal with the student on Monday. The supervisor is not pleased with my answer. He slams the door. Now, I wouldn't normally say that, but somebody could say that was disrespectful and insubordinate because that's a term that this organization likes to use. But check it out. They only use that language to black children. They do not. They've never said that their behavior towards me as a black woman is insubordinate or disrespectful. But that's a separate conversation. And by the way, for the record, this supervisor is black. He's a black man. He shouldn't have slammed the door, period. So after I take the call, I finish the call with the disgruntled parent. No. That was my neighbor's dog barking. After I take the call with the disgruntled parent, I then go and say, I go look for the supervisor. And part of me is like, don't go to him. He was wrong. Don't go to him. But because of some because of some delimitingness that's been happening by my superiors, right? Finding a way to erode my power, finding ways to justify it. I'm like, I'm going to try to run interference so that if this man escalates above me, right? I want to know what's going on. That's different from when you're the executive officer versus when you're in this middle level leadership, leadership position. Okay. So 
I go and I couldn't find them. So then I go over the loudspeaker. I asked for the person to come to my, if you're still in the building, can you please come to my office? Thank you. About five minutes later, he came. We had a conversation. I'm not going to roll out everything, but the gist of that conversation was this. And it, and it's so funny because when I hear things that are illogical or irrational, lately I've been getting emotional because I don't know what to do with data or feedback that I deem as irrational. I'm overwhelmed. Irrational conversations, irrational feedback, I find overwhelming because I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to respond to irrational behavior without becoming more rational. And I I get the sense, this is so good, y'all. I don't know if this reflection will get any plays, but some things are clearing up for me in my head right now. Because this is something that I've wrestled with before. When I find that people come to me in an irrational way, I then respond rationally. They don't want that. It overwhelms me, though, because if I'm not able to respond to you rationally, I don't know what to do because I'm not going to respond irrationally because if I do, my irrational is ugly, okay? It's ugly. (laughs) You don't want it. And professionally, I can't go there. So I become rash. I become even more rational, and people don't like it. They don't like it at all. I can think about... I think of another conversation I had with a young lady yes, or earlier yesterday. And she was a black girl. And there's so And the environment, there are only, okay, five of us, five black people in the building, five black adults in the building to 80, to 80 whites. I mean, come on now. Just come on. I don't know if you understand how significant that is from from a cultural and a political lens, right? So I talked to two of the, the blacks. Who's the other one? And, and I, myself included. So both of them came to me with this like charge, like they were upset about a student, and it's um, they're talking very fast, and there's there are a lot of feelings like. They disrespected me. I'm not going to be disrespected. Right? Okay. And I try not to judge that because when students, quote unquote, disrespect me, I don't take it personal because I understand the, I understand behaviors, right? So behaviors don't land on me the same way they land on others. And I have to make room that possibly is because I'm a social scientist and I've studied behaviors. I study them. So, <laughs> so now they come to me, they're all upset about being disrespected by a student and I'm talking to them in a very calm, measured way. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. Um, and that they don't like it. They make, it makes them feel like they're not being um, supported, like they, they're not being understood. And what I've learned to do and it doesn't always work, it works maybe half the time, is I'll give back to them, I know you're. this is how you feel, this is what you're thinking, am I right? 
Because even though my emotions don't match their emotions, I want to let them know I do understand. I'm just not responding to you the same way. But they don't want intellectual or rational understanding. They want emotional rapporting. To rapport is to match. Now, the training that I was a part of last semester talks about that's one of the things that you do in coaching. You, when people are connected, when people connect, there is an alignment of their bodies. Their bodies, you start having very shared body gestures, body posturing, the way you, you talk similarly. And so I'm not rapporting with people. So they don't feel that I'm connecting with them. I get that. 150%, right? However, I can't go there with you for a number of reasons. But I'm telling you, <laughs> and last week when I did go there with one person, and I went, she com- sent a complaint to my supervisor. And now I'm dealing with that this week. But I dare not try to explain to my supervisor why I report with that individual, which I, I kind of tried to. But nonetheless, I just have to, I just said, okay, I'm, he said, I'm going to need you, I'm going to, I'm going to need you to apologize to, um, that teacher. I said, absolutely. And I went and apologized. I'll tell you guys what I said to her, um, in another reflection. It might come up because it's all related. So I, at the end of the day, I'm not reporting. So go back to the guy last night. He's, he slams the door because I'm not reporting with him. So we talk and he said that he doesn't feel like I support him. I said, I don't understand that, sir. I said, I don't understand that, sir, because, um, when you, when you, Tell me about a student that's disruptive. I follow up. And on occasion, I've done something I don't feel comfortable doing, but I get the sense that he wants me to. I go and give the kids a little lecture. I hate lecturing children. I find it, I feel that's disrespectful to them. They don't need to be lectured. I, and and I'm not sure they don't need to be lectured, but they don't need to be tag team lectured. That's a better way of saying it. He's already battled with them. I'm going to come on top of that and lecture them some more. That grieves me because we have very little respect for young people. We have very little respect for children. So you're going to have two adults standing over you. Literally physically standing over you because not all of my middle schoolers I'm taught. A lot of my middle schoolers are taller than me. But most of the, I'm going to stand over you and he stood over you and lectured you. Now I'm going to stand over you while side by side with him and we're going to fuss at you? For what? Who, who does that serve? See, that's emotional. And what I've asked the staff to do, which they don't like, is to document it. No, what they want to do is walk up to me in this emotional space and, and Johnny did this and Johnny, thought, I mean, it's fascinating to watch this adult being very worked up because of something a kid did, a child. See, let me tell y'all something. 
Let me tell you something. I'm assuming that if you're listening to me, you're an adult. Now, you might just be 18 years old. But if you're an adult, listen to me. Go find out your trauma score. Because everybody has a trauma score. Go find your trauma score. And get help. When you don't attend to your trauma, it comes out. And most times, adults deal with their trauma by traumatizing children. I'm sorry to say that. If you have an unaddressed trauma score, you are 98% likely to take that trauma out on a child. Because you you have to have the power to release it. And as an adult, society gives you power over kids. And I will not move into partnership with adults who are doing that to kids. And here's the other side of it. I know that most adults don't understand this. They don't know it. They don't know it. And I, and I dare not try to explain it to them. Without the training, they're not going to get that. That's, that's, that requires training. So when I'm in that situation, I become extra flat. Okay. Okay, tell me what you're thinking. Okay, can I get you to write that down? Then I'm going to follow up with that. They interpret that as me not supporting them. So that's what I said. So I told you the story. I'm glad I told this story. We know I went in the rabbit hole. I told the story to tell you this. That um, he said that he was offended by me when I first got there because I changed his assignment. And I changed his assignment by 30 minutes. So he has a six-hour shift. And for 30 minutes, I've positioned him at the front door. He's used to using that entire six-hour shift to float the building, to monitor the building for safe, for student safety. Okay. But when you start at dismissal, we have students at the front door who are waiting to be picked up by their parents. I need you there. The other kids in the building are still in the building after dismissal because they're part of some kind of club. And they have an adult with them. And what I told the supervisor, I said, when he said, well, I have to watch the kids throughout the building. I said, the kids throughout the building should be with adults. And if they're not, that's a bigger issue. If the adults who have taken on this job aren't properly supervising those students so that they're roaming the building, then you need to let me know. I said, I'll monitor that. What I need you to do is be positioned at the door. He didn't like that. Okay, that's, I mean, how many of us have had supervisors that have given us a direction? We didn't like it, but guess what? You have to do it. Okay. So what I've done to try to take away the sting of that decision is I try to sit out there with him for a portion of the time. That's my my effort, my attempt to try to show support. The, the crappy part, I'm going to say a curse word, the shitty part, because this is shitty, 
The shitty part about all of this is that in me talking to my AP about the situation, because my AP is in bed with my people, quote unquote, my subordinates, because technically my AP is a subordinate. This is a fascinating, I told you, it's a fascinating case. All right. Because he is technically a subordinate of mine, however, he is an administrator. He has power. People will loop him in to use his power in their camp. So in some buildings, when there are two administrators, the administrators are on the same side. And sometimes they're not. In my situation, he's not, he's not, he's not with me. And, but, but because he's friendly to me and he's because I'm a rational person, it's not just because he's friendly because I haven't seen, I didn't see the undercurrent of him. So I took him at face value. I know I have to grow up. I, from one administrator to the next, I talked to him about my decision to place this supervisor at the front door. Well, because my assistant principal is in bed with the other, uh, then they went and he told other people. And now other people who are frustrated with me, who are giving me the dots are now cons- in his, in the supervisors. I've seen it. I've seen him talking to him them more. And what he told me last night, which he doesn't understand sociologically, he was like, yeah, people are starting to talk to me now. I was in this building for three years and they didn't talk to me. I said, and did they start talking to you in the last three months? He was like, yeah. I said, do you not understand because I'm here? You're an African-American. I'm an African-American. They're upset with me. They can't, they have to make a case that they're not upset with me because I'm black. So in order to make the case that they can't be upset with me because I'm black, they now have to befriend other black blacks, but you're going to befriend somebody who's a subordinate to me. And not only a subordinate to me, he's a subordinate to them. It took another, I can't, no, I have to tell you. So I have another teacher. I have only one other black professional in that building. According to this, this system is incredible, incredibly hierarchical, incredibly, incredibly. And she said, she was talking about um, why they respond to her differently than they would respond to an assistant. So there's another black woman who's an assistant. And this teacher told me this week, they respond to me differently because I'm their peer. She is, she reports to them. And I said, exactly. And then you understand why they res- they respond to me differently. All right. Moving on. So now they weren't talking to this guy for three years. I'm now there in position of power over them. Now he is their subordinate. Now he's a utility of them. I don't even know if you're following this story. This is fascinating. But let me move back because I'm going to. Um, so I probably should do this in two parts because I haven't talked about the other piece. I'm going to do this in two parts, y'all. Let me find a way to because I have so much more to say. Listen. I hate doing two-parters, though, because when I do two-parters, they don't get, the second piece does not get listened to. Dang it. Mm, 
Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. All right, you guys. I don't know. Let me see. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to keep talking. I got to make a decision because we're at, we're over an hour and I have three points I still want to make. Okay. So, um, oh gosh, hold on a second. I'm distracted now. Like I'm feeling the pressure. All right. So anyway, I think I told you that whole story just to say, I said to him last night, I said, sir, I have a responsibility to keep the kids safe. They're outside waiting for their parents to be picked up. They have to be supervised. I made a decision to have you go to the front to be supervised because that is my job. I have a responsibility and it's my right to do as as the person that's over this building. And I'm sorry if you don't like the fact that I have that responsibility. And then he was like, well, the previous principal didn't do it. And I wanted to say, but I didn't. I wanted to say, and where's the previous principal now? <laughs> I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that made made no sense. They brought me in because he was replaced. Why would you use that as an argument? <laughs> and I'm not laughing at the guy. I'm not at all because I think that whole thing, I'm not going to even touch that. But anyway, so I said, sir, that he and I might be two different types of principals. But while we, while I'm here and we're working under my license, because my license is on this building, I have the right to make decisions based on how I interpret safety. And what I'm asking you to do is to be at the front door with your about 30 kids unsupervised and let the groups who have adults throughout the building, let the adults supervise those kids and then let me deal with those adults if they're not supervising the kids. But I think what was fascinating for me in that story is that he was upset by the decision, by my ability to make the decision, to make the call. This is this is really at the heart of this grand impression that I want to tell you guys about. All right. Um and I'm going to park it here. I'm going to park it here. I'm mean, let me recap, but before I recap, let me say this. If this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about impressions, because a, a significant chunk of this conversation was about impressions, right? Because I was trying, I'm trying to, I'm setting up a case. And in order to do that, in order to make this case, you're going to have to understand that I'm operating in, I have been operating intuitively. And then still a significant portion of this case that I need to make is, uh, it's, it's derived from an intuitive place. And in order for me to get you to understand that case and the intuitive basis for that case, I got to get you to understand how intuition works. So I spent a good portion of this reflection talking about intuition, introvert intuition, and how it works and how it, how it contrasts 
how intuitive knowing is different from sensing knowing. I then went into the job to start talking about how the organization, how this particular assignment, I'm experiencing um, complaints that 60% of them, maybe 75% of them, I've solved. But every time I solve one, another complaint comes up. Where there's this pattern across time of complaining and solving those complaints that at some point I have to say what's underneath the complaint. And I think I closed this reflection by talking about this particular safety person being upset because I'm making a decision and the decision I'm making, the decisions I'm making are not irrational. They're not irrational decisions. They are based in my, not only my right, but my responsibility to keep that building safe. And I have a right and a responsibility to use personnel as, as necessary, as needed. And I justified my decision to ask him to spend the first 30 minutes of his six hour shift supervising the front door. I can't see anything irrational in that. Hey, you guys, if you're listening and you do think that that's irrational or you see a different side of this story, you can let me know. I don't see it. So, um, I think that that speaks to the red line underneath the dots. I think that's why I told that story. Because there is a frustration and an anger that I'm making decisions. And when people complain, they complain as though it's, as though their frustration is rational. I'm, I'm wrapping it up here. This is so good. They're complaining as though their complaint is rational, but it's not. And I think it makes it worse. So that when they give me the complaint, I then respond through in a rational way. I don't know another word to use, so I'm sorry if I'm on, I'm being redundant. I respond, but I never addressed the irrational nature of the complaint. I can't, really, I can't. I can't do it because no adult is going to appreciate me saying, you're being irrational. So I have to treat the complaint at face value. And at face value, when you tell me that you have to supervise the whole building and you can't just be in one spot for 30 minutes because that's your rational argument, I then come back and say, through a rational lens, but the rest of the building has adults throughout where those kids are who are responsible for the children. There's no one responsible for the kids at the front door. That's where I need you. And that, my dear followers, creates an anger at a level that's very new for me. This is very fascinating. But, no, it's not new to me. It's 
it's now becoming clear because I've experienced this in, in other spaces. That it's not about the rational argument. It's about the irrational. And what actually is the irrational is what I'm going to talk about in the next episode. What is the irrational? If, if in fact, if in fact, there's that red line is the, is irrational. If in fact, that red line underneath my, the dots on my whiteboard in my office, are you guys imagining that with me? <laughs> I can see it, can you? If that red line represents an irrational undertone, what, what is the irrational? What is it? That's what I'm going to come back and talk about in a part two. But in this reflection, we've talked about intuition. And I've made a case for the irrational. I've made a case for the irrational. I'm snapping my fingers. Here it is. I gave you the impression of the irrational. I gave you the impression so that you can see why I'm saying the red line. No one can see the red line, right? No one can see the body in the bed. No one can see the head on the pillow. But we see the imprint on the pillow. So we know that there was a head, a head was there. I can see irrational underneath this irrational argument. That's the imprint. But it wasn't clear until this week. And last night, ironically, ironically, last night solidified it. There were several, a couple other things that happened yesterday that just solidified it for me. But I think it only solidified because that impression, that knowing has been brewing in my unconscious. And this week it crystallized and it became the tip for me of that iceberg. What is visible above the water. Although I've been contending with that iceberg underneath the water this whole time, I'm now accessing the tip. It's becoming clear. So, <laughs> if I'm moving about or talking about impressions and talking about um, an impression in a real life work context, if it relates to a conversation you've had in the world, I would appreciate you taking this link and sharing it with those participants. I haven't said this lately, but let me say it again. Please do a smart share, a meaningful share, a rational share. When you, when you give the link to the, your friend or your family member, or your coworker, or the stranger on the street, which I hope that's not what you're doing, please tell them what part of the conversation that they should listen to. This is about a hun- an hour and 20 minutes long. It will be. Don't make them listen to the whole thing. Tell them what minute they should go to, okay? All right. And if my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. You can find me on my website at youranidom.wordpress.com. Let me give you your assignment. Okay, before I do the assignment, I want to just give you a reminder that I have not told you where I work. I've not given you the name of the school not giving you the name of the city. I've not given you the name of the state. I have not given you my name. So this story is protected at four levels. Okay. Um, and this story is not about those people. This story is about my experiences. So it's not like I'm looking at a situation that doesn't relate to someone else, 
I'm looking at a situation. I'm talking about what I'm experiencing through my journal. So I just want to tell you that I, I remain committed to keeping people safe. All right. I do remain committed to keeping people safe. Your assignment. When have you dealt with an impression? And I think we, so I don't know if you need to know this, but every person has intuition in their primary stack. It becomes difficult when it's in the lower part of the primary stack, when it's third or fourth. So whether your intuition is first, second, third, or fourth in your stack, you have it. So I'm going to ask you, some of you may be able to come up with an answer faster than others, but I'm going to ask all of you, when have you dealt with an impression that you could not fully explain because it was pre-language? Now, it gets a little complicated if you are an FI user, a dominant FI user, or a dominant TI user, and even a dominant SI user, because all of those introverted functions allow us, excuse me, forget FI and TI, although I do think that FI and TI complicates things. The reason why I'm saying forget FI, TI, because those are um, judging functions. That's not just about knowing, but um, I think sometimes they can look, they can look similar. Um, I think that there's, I, I can see TI and NI. To me, there are times when they, for me, I don't know what someone else would say. But anyway, whatever function it is, I don't really care. When is the time, last time you knew something, but you didn't have words to explain what you knew? You didn't have the words and you didn't have the evidence for it. But you knew it. And how did you build buy-in from other... What did you do with it? Did you just sit on it until you got evidence? Or did you begin to talk it out with someone until you were able to get their buy-in? What did you do with the impression? What did you do with the... What did you do with the un... The unknowing... I don't like to say that. The unsupported knowing. What did you do with unsensory-based knowing? I don't know if this is grammatical or not, but work with me. What did you do with unsensory-based knowing? Unproven, unproven-based knowing. I feel like this is so not grammatical, but I hope you give me some grace. What did you do with knowing that you could not support with data or evidence? What did you do with it? Did you just sit on it? Or did you do the messy work and try to get people to understand it, even understand it, even if you didn't have evidence and you didn't have words? What did you do? What did you do with it? Is what I want to know. That's what I want to know. Oh, I don't want to know because these assignments are not about me. They're about you. So I don't really want to know. That's what I want you to know. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. Um, I haven't done a back-to-back reflection in a while, but I'm going to go and finish this. And see, I'm not even finishing. I'm at an hour and 20 minutes. So, <sighs> my goodness. What is the irrational? I'm going to talk about that next. And I'm going to talk about concepts called, I'm going to tell you a little bit from the list, law and order, red herring, and white supremacy. Law and order, red herring, might talk a little bit about um, gaslighting and dog whistles too, but, um, 
I'm going to end up with white supremacy. So please stick around. Please come back for that, that part two. Don't leave me hanging, y'all. All right. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.